Chapter Twenty One From My Mark Twain. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. My Mark Twain by William Dean Howells. Chapter Twenty One. The order of my acquaintance, or call it intimacy, with Clemens was this. Our first meeting in Boston, my visits to him in Hartford, his visits to me in Cambridge, in Belmont, and in Boston, our briefer and less frequent meetings in Paris and New York, all with repeated interruptions through my absences in Europe and his sojourns in London, Berlin, Vienna, and Florence, and his flights to the many ends, and odds and ends, of the earth. I will not try to follow the events, if they were not rather the subjective experiences of those different periods and points of time, which I must not fail to make include his summer at York Harbor, and his divers residences in New York, on Tenth Street and on Fifth Avenue, at Riverdale and at Stormfield, which his daughter has told me he loved best of all his houses and hoped to make his home for long years. Not much remains to me of the week or so that we had together in Paris early in the summer of 1904. The first thing I got at my banker's was a cable message announcing that my father was stricken with paralysis, but urging my stay for further intelligence. And I went about, till the final summons came, with my head in a mist of care and dread. Clemens was very kind and brotherly through it all. He was living greatly to his mind in one of those arcaded little hotels in the Rue de Rivoli, and he was free from all household duties to range with me. We drove together to make calls of digestion at many houses, where he had got indigestion through his reluctance from their hospitality, for he hated dining out. But, as he explained, his wife wanted him to make these visits, and he did it, as he did everything she wanted. At one place, some suburban villa, he could get no answer to his ring, and he hove his cards over the gate just as it opened, and he had the shame of explaining, in his unexplanatory French, to the man picking them up. He was excruciatingly helpless with his cabmen, but by very cordially smiling and casting himself on the driver's mercy, he always managed to get where he wanted. The family was on the verge of their many moves, and he was doing some small errands. He said that the others did the main things, and left him to do what the cat might. It was with that return upon the buoyant billow of plasmon, renewed in look and limb, that Clemens's universally pervasive popularity began in his own country. He had hitherto been more intelligently accepted, or more largely imagined, in Europe, and I suppose it was my sense of this that inspired the stupidity of my saying to him, 
when we came to consider the state of polite learning among us, you mustn't expect people to keep it up here as they do in England. But it appeared that his countrymen were only wanting the chance, and they kept it up in honor of him past all precedent. One does not go into a catalogue of dinners, receptions, meetings, speeches, and the like, when there are more vital things to speak of. He loved these obvious joys, and he eagerly strove with the occasions they gave him for the brilliancy which seemed so exhaustless, and was so exhausting. His friends saw that he was wearing himself out, and it was not because of Mrs. Clemens's health alone that they were glad to have him take refuge at Riverdale. The family lived there two happy, hopeless years, and then it was ordered that they should change for his wife's sake to some less exacting climate. Clemens was not eager to go to Florence, but his imagination was taken, as it would have been in the old young days, by the notion of packing his furniture into flexible steel cages from his house in Hartford, and unpacking it from them untouched at his villa in Fiesole. He got what pleasure any man could out of that triumph of mind over matter, but the shadow was creeping up his life. One sunny afternoon we sat on the grass before the mansion, after his wife had begun to get well enough for removal, and we looked up toward a balcony, where, by and by, that lovely presence made itself visible, as if it had stooped there from a cloud. A hand frailly waved a handkerchief. Clemens ran over the lawn toward it, calling tenderly, What? What? As if it might be an asking for him, instead of the greeting it really was for me. It was the last time I saw her, if indeed I can be said to have seen her then, and long afterward, when I said how beautiful we all thought her, how good, how wise, how wonderfully perfect in every relation of life, he cried out in a breaking voice, Oh, why didn't you ever tell her? She thought you didn't like her. What a pang it was then, not to have told her. But how could we have told her? His unreason endeared him to me more than all his wisdom. To that Riverdale sojourn belong my impressions of his most violent anti-Christian science rages, which began with the postponement of his book, and softened into acceptance of the delay till he had well-nigh forgotten his wrath when it came out. There was also one of those joint episodes of ours which, strangely enough, did not eventuate in entire failure, as most of our joint episodes did. He wrote furiously to me of a wrong which had been done to him of the most helpless and one of the most helped of our literary brethren, asking me to join with him in recovering the money paid over by that brother's publisher 
to a false friend, who had withheld it and would not give any account of it. Our hapless brother had appealed to Clemens, as he had to me, with the facts, but not asking our help, probably because he knew he need not ask, and Clemens enclosed to me a very taking-by-the-throat message, which he proposed sending to the false friend. For once I had some sense, and answered that this would never do, for we had really no power in the matter, and I contrived a letter to the recreant so softly diplomatic that I shall always think of it with pride when my honesties no longer give me satisfaction, saying that this incident had come to our knowledge, and suggesting that we felt sure he would not finally wish to withhold the money. Nothing more, practically, than that. But that was enough. There came promptly back a letter of justification, covering a very substantial check, which we, hilariously, forwarded to our beneficiary. But the helpless man who was so used to being helped did not answer with the gladness I, at least, expected of him. He acknowledged the check as he would any ordinary payment, and then he made us observe that there was still a large sum due him out of the monies withheld. At this point I proposed to Clemens that we should let the nonchalant victim collect the remnant himself. Clouds of sorrow had gathered about the bowed head of the delinquent since we began on him, and my fickle sympathies were turning his way from the victim, who was really to blame for leaving his affairs so unguardedly to him in the first place. Clemens made some sort of grit assent, and we dropped the matter. He was more used to ingratitude from those he helped than I was, who found being laid down upon not so amusing as he found my revolt. He reckoned I was right, he said, and after that I think we never recurred to the incident. It was not ingratitude that he ever minded. It was treachery that really maddened him past forgiveness. End of chapter 21 Read by Dennis Sayers in Modesto, California, for LibriVox Winter 2007